Cause Club. Hey everybody, this is Jean Nathan and this is Crosstown Conversations, which is a show that has been running in the middle of the day now for about two and a half years. And um, I don't know, I just kind of got it in my mind that I wanted to see what it was like to be on at this time of the day. So um, I hope some of you who uh, have been listening uh, so far and my goodness, I certainly heard some incredible stuff um, just now. I'm, I'm still... I know. The mayor <laughs> saying what he said. Literally shocked at it and, um, uh, and, and concerned about uh, the effect that that uh, is going to have on some folks um, in, in their perspective. And I'm sure he's going to try to get out a, a, um, a, a different kind of message pretty soon. But, um, you know, we have lived through a very, very difficult year. And um, a, a lot of people are literally depressed and, and full of angst. So um, I've taken two tacks in the show this evening to address that. One, we have the author uh, and reporter, uh, filmmaker, uh, Jason Berry on with us. And, and Jason is one of the guys who basically exposed the whole initially locally and then nationally story about the pedophilia that was too common in the Catholic Church. And um, and it was so interesting to see the outcome of that because sometimes when you expose something, when you pull the curtain back, initially it, you don't know where it's going to go, but ultimately it foments change. And so we're going to talk about how that that journalism that, that – was the product of this individual sitting next to me here had such a huge change and we had to go through a lot of pretty nasty stuff to get where we are today and and I'm I'm really interested to hear where we are today because I don't really know uh, where things are in the church and otherwise on this issue and then we're going to follow that lighten up just a little bit with Morgan Malthrop who um, is is somebody who studies history and who is very engaged in in many many different endeavors in the city. Also a writer and who's very interested in the whole question of leadership and how somebody can change things. And so he's going to talk about some of the folks he's written about, and then an event an art event that he has coming up next week that has some frivolous carnival elements to it, but also some very serious some elements as well. Yeah. Real comment on. Um, our, our Mardi Gras culture here, which, you know, sometimes you speak of double, double-edged swords, and, and huh. actually our Mardi Gras is kind of a multi Everything comes out at Mardi Gras, sword. as Willie Birch once told me. <laughs> Everything comes out. So let's, let's get started with Jason. And um, so, Jason, uh, I'd like you to step back a minute to the time when you first started exploring this question and writing about it and, and, and what you started picking up on it and how you determined the depth and the extent of, of, of the reach of, of that reality. Well, in 1985, I did a series of articles in Lafayette for the Times of Acadiana, which at that time was a scrappy, muckraking weekly. It, it isn't, sadly, anymore. But that led me on a seven-year road doing the book um, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, which came out in 92. And I guess by about 1990, I had... <coughs> been around the country and reported and gotten information from enough places such that I could see this was an enormous problem of bishops concealing uh, 
priests who had abused kids. When the book came out, I got more than my 15 minutes of fame that Andy Warhol says everybody will get. And by about 1994, I'd done a lot of public speaking, written a lot of articles, and I figured this is it. I'm Cincinnatus. I'm going back to my plow. And um, eight years later, the Boston Globe came along with an enormous story that kind of reopened uh, a lot of these uh, cases, some of which I'd written about, many others I had not. That's the Spotlight. Yeah, uh-huh, that, the Spotlight team. And, of course, the movie Spotlight is about that. So I ended up doing two more books. And I guess the one thing I learned through it all, and I know you sort of want this as a prelude to talking about where we are today politically in America, it, it, it is amazing how stubborn institutions and bureaucracies can be. I mean, the church is 2,000 years old, and there is the mentality that uh, the church will always be here, and uh, there is no rush in changing. And I think the enormous onslaught of uh, prosecutions and uh, uh, lawsuits uh, forced the bishops in 2002 to embrace a youth protection charter. Pope Francis is a reformer. He has made some very good steps. Uh, they still have a good ways to go on this, but it's a lot better than it was, uh, you know, 20 years ago. So I'd like to understand a little bit more about um, the, the where it is, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, this was in the headlines uh, constantly for a good while, and it was it, it was a sickening story. It was so sad because we really want to respect our spiritual leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if there's your own religion or not, I, I used to attend a, an Episcopal service in New York for many years because it was the nearest church to me, and I, I just appreciated hearing um, the sermons and the and the counsel and the and the uplifting messages and the uh, uh, advice on how to live. Um, so it's, it, you want to be able to deal with that message and to have to confront the fact that the people who are your spiritual leaders are actually corrupt and, I guess, morally corrupt and, 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 and um, well, abusing your own kids <laughs> who are uh, primarily with the kids being abused were, were um, altar boys who were working in the church? Or how did that well, it was quite a range of children who were abused. Uh, many of them came from uh, families going through uh, difficulties, father's an alcoholic, or there's a divorce and the mother's raising the kids. But there were plenty of nuclear intact families uh, who had children who were abused. What I found in the long haul of doing the reporting was that a great many priests and nuns uh, gave me information, uh, some of them at uh, you know risk to their careers. So it wasn't you know, as simple as saying the church is corrupt because there were plenty of people within uh, the religious and clerical life who wanted to see justice and ended up doing things their bishops or religious order superiors would not have liked. But it's very hard to get an institution that that, that is centuries old and is accustomed to operating along unwritten codes of secrecy uh, to change, and it was it, it took basically it was a collision between two instruments of democracy, the court system and a free press, and this monarchical governing system in which the Pope is essentially the supreme court of canon law and uh, John Paul uh, was completely uh, uh, well he was terrible on it. he just did not want to face it. he was getting old, uh, he was in denial. 
when Ratzinger became pope, uh, even though he was a very conservative theologian and not a very popular man within, you know, <clears throat> many corners of the church, to his credit, he really did engineer some reforms. He didn't go far enough. Francis has now come in, and, uh, you know, there's a one of the congregations in Rome is charged with um, looking at bishops who were accused of negligence or abuse, and the problem is it's, it comes down to the justice system. How well does the justice system work? And uh, if I can just pivot for a moment, I think that is going to be the test in the United States over the next four years under Trump because the people he is putting into these cabinet positions are clearly um, hostile to the reforms of recent years. I mean, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State designate, is a man who has led ExxonMobil, which for years led this campaign uh, saying that climate change... Yeah, uh, against the a, environment. Yeah. That, well, saying that climate change was a hoax, that it wasn't real. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's a, a big uh, case in New York. I think the Attorney General has, has brought litigation against ExxonMobil on this. Um, you know, the guy who is going in to head EPA uh, from uh, Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken, the former attorney general, again, has sued EPA wanting to revoke um, the uh, regulatory functions that a good environmental agency needs. So, The woman he appointed to education um, has been in favor of uh, vouchers, yep. which essentially is a, a way of taking money out of the public school system to support private schools. Um, in, in many cases, in, uh, in particular, um, religious schools, and, and I'm not against religious schools, but I, I don't think that public money is meant to be spent on religious mm -hmm. schools. And so, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's systematic down the line. I think actually the fact of the matter is the appointments are worse than, than anybody expected. Right. Um, right. Uh, in, well, I, I say anybody. I mean anybody who essentially I were agree. opponents of the philosophies. Well, I don't think Nikki Trump. Haley, the governor of South Carolina, going to the U.N. is necessarily bad. I mean, she's a Republican, but she – you know, move quickly to bring down the Confederate flag after the terrible killings in Charleston. Uh, I mean, that doesn't mean she's a progressive leader, but she had at least responded appropriately. And um, she opposed Trump, uh, and, you know, he reached out to her, so I guess he's trying to cross the aisle on that one. In some cases, I, I think to, to, in too much, it, it feels like whoever is, is forwarding candidates to him, mm -hmm. and this is where I think the problem is, um, that the people who are in the position to forward candidates to him are the ones who are trying to take this down a really regressive um, extremist path. And um, and he, in too many cases, seems to be buying into that. But you, you, let me take back to your pivot where you say it's the justice system that is, is in play here and that is going to make all the difference. It, mm -hmm. Explain to me a little bit more about what, you, what you're saying there. Well, if you look at... The, the recent history, just to take one example of, of EPA and, uh, you know, the regulatory measures that Obama put in, I mean, he was one of the better environmental presidents that we've had. Uh, it's obvious that uh, the Republican majority in Congress and the new people being put in want to gut those reforms as best they can. But ultimately, there's going to be a legal 
test here, and I think there will be legal testing across the bureaucracy because, you know, a body of case law builds up over time, and a federal agency uh, operates along the lines of what the courts have ruled. And so if you have, for example, the Pentagon, we know, has uh, a report, I mean, this has made news, where they consider global uh, climate change one of the major uh, risks, uh, factors, you know, facing the military establishment. People who come in and say overnight, well, our man got elected, we don't think climate change is that real, they're going to run into a um, set of case law, case laws. They will collide with uh, staff lawyers and people who don't want to make those changes. So there's going to be a lot of tension. Uh, I would suspect there'll be a great deal of whistleblowing. And I think when you look at the fact that Trump is so hostile to the news media, uh, I mean, to the point where he can't even take satirical comedy shows, you know, Alec Baldwin on Saturday Night Live. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be on the other end of Alec Baldwin's personifications, though. I must well, say, as brilliant. funny as they are, I mean, they're devastating. I get it. But look, if you're the president of the United States, one would think, A, you've got to have pretty thick skin. Yeah. And secondly, I mean, so what if some comic is lampooning you on Saturday night TV? I mean, you know. You've got your trigger on the finger. You got. You know, and yeah, you're the president. Yeah, you're the president exactly. And um, I think by demonizing the press, he's made a serious mistake. Yeah. And I think there'll be blowback because of that. I don't think that when he does things like that, that there's that much judgment involved. I think that you know he's been accused of having an impulse control uh, problem, and I'm somewhat familiar with that, having been accused <laughs> of that myself. Um, but uh, you know, he, he takes it to the nth. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like it, so I'm, I'm not sure that he makes a, a judgment calls on that. I think that he just says how he feels uh, too often with his tweets, and everybody's curious to see, is he going to continue to tweet as, a, as the president? And I suspect he is. I, well, I, I mean, it continues to get him attention, and that's the thing. I mean, that's it, that's what's just driving it, attention, attention, attention. Well, it's, it's actually in a funny way. You know, some people have compared it to the fireside chats of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the contemporary version of well, that. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, have we gotten that far down? I mean, you know. I think the fact that the fact that his trigger finger is always ready to go in these tweets yeah. Yeah. suggests that he is constantly looking at television, and you would expect someone in that position to read a lot. The fact that he scoffed at getting briefing paper, uh, the morning briefing from the CIA. I mean, you know. Ignorance is not bliss when you're president of the United States. No, but, you know, don't you think in a certain sense that, that, that he's reflecting where we've gotten with all of this social media stuff? He's just kind of putting a mirror back uh, up to a lot of what we're doing every day, every minute, checking our phones and this and that. and He's just there. Well, that's a good point, Morgan. Uh, celebrity culture itself is a sort of wasteland, I think, culturally. Uh, and yet... W- you know, he's going to face major decisions that will have repercussions for an entire nation. And one would hope that he grows into the office in some sense and develops a broader sense of responsibility toward people. So this is um, those who are trying to be optimistic in the face of 
um, enormous angst and depression. There's, there's really, to, to some extent, you talk all over the holidays. Everybody yeah. tried their, their darndest not to talk about it. Okay, we're not going to talk about Trump tonight. We're mm. not going to do that. We're going right. to try to enjoy life. But at the same time, those who are optimistic about the value of, you know, I talk about the pulling back of the curtains, the, the reality check that has a lot of different levels. And one level is that there are a lot of people in our our nation, and really it's, it's global, um, but let's just uh, mm-hmm. stick with our community and our nation, who are hopeless right now, who don't have the education to deal with the technological revolution we're going through, who have lost their homes, who have lost their jobs, who have... Um, are not going to be able to put the kids through college. I mean, it's just phenomenal what's going on. It's very, very deep. It's very dramatic. And I think both parties have failed uh, people because the Democrats have been busy sort of defending themselves against the Republican stuff, almost saying, hey, I'm actually kind of like the Republicans too, you know? Right, right. We're for trade agreements and and we're for welfare reform and, and really sort of being defensive rather than taking on the depth of the change that our economy is going through and really addressing that and making sure kids are getting educated to deal with this world and and, um, dramatic social reform that's really necessary happens. So they pull back the curtain, and and a lot of us realized what was going on, but there was not a kind of mainstream attention to these issues. That came out of this election, and so in some way can we benefit from what has happened, and will the kind of resistance that I anticipate is going to happen, not just the the million-woman march on Washington type thing, but an ongoing um, resistance to what they may very well try to do, this group of people who have captured the White House, will this actually in some way bring us to a point of dealing more aggressively, more proactively with the underlying socio-political economic realities that are crushing us. Like, is it change from within, or is it revolution, or is it both at the same time, considering your your experience, Jason? Well, I'd put it this way. And since he's going to be president shortly, you have to look at this really as as Trump's uh, show, <clears throat> for the short term at least, He's sending clear signals that he wants to bring jobs back that have been outsourced and gone overseas. Just yesterday, Ford Motor announced that they're not going to Mexico. They're going to build out their plant in Michigan. Yeah, look, it's 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 one company making a change. If he is serious about changing NAFTA, I don't know that he is. I mean, it worked great on the campaign NAFTA trail. NAFTA being the trade agreement that has fostered a lot of the move of corporations and yes. plants and jobs offshore. Yeah, which Bill Clinton gave us <laughs> as president. But well, it was going to happen anyway. And I mean, the, the reality in a lot of ways in this is the Internet changed things dramatically. And no one ever admits to the fact that none of those jobs are, are ever going to come back. Well, it's not I just the Internet. I mean, it's automation in general. Yeah, automation right. in general. But, you know, if he does have some success in forcing companies to stop 
sending jobs overseas. That, in turn, I think will spark uh, a, a larger question, which he will have to answer, about how do you retrain a workforce that uh, 10 years ago rebuilt cars and now has to master um, you know, computers and, and digital commerce. Exactly. So, you know, I think... There's, a, there's another level to that, though, that's mm -hmm. really frightening because, yeah, on the one hand, I'm saying we better be looking to how our youth are being educated now to see if they are getting the skills that they need to deal with this technological revolution, yeah. right? And then you see the article. I don't know if you saw the column today, Tom the Hump yeah, Friedman, Friedman yeah. talking about how you know it's not just about manufacturing <laughs> jobs or even service industry jobs. It, uh, it's everything. We, the computers are now at a point where they can actually create and do the kinds of things that we're thinking that maybe I, I, I'm the one, I'm one of the people who fosters constantly the idea that the creative industries right. are the direction and the, and the opportunity. Right. And here they're saying now that, uh, really? Okay, but computers can <laughs> right. do that too. Are we headed towards some kind of completely jobless kind of economy? And if so... What happens to human beings? What 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 are we going to be doing? <laughs> well, that's what? a big pole vault from talking about what Donald Trump's going to do or not. I do. know that's that's uh, what I'm saying uh, though because. Well, hang on. I just I, I, there is something I want to back off the precipice there. No, 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 no. I mean, I'll go wherever you want to in the conversation, but I think what all of this is going to do is put uh, increasing weight on state governments mm -hmm. to come up mm -hmm. with funding mechanisms uh, to get kids into college, into community colleges where they can get training so they're at least able to function in a digital economy. Now, whether we are actually, at, you know, in the twilight of workers and robots will be doing it all, I, I don't know. To me, that's a science fiction question I can't answer, and I realize Tom Friedman travels the world. But look, if you look at what has happened in this state, to take one example. And I, I was just about to say, if, if, if we're talking about states, falling back problem. on the states, and you've got two problems with the states. Number one, I, I don't know, Louisiana is probably one of the worst examples of what the state budgets look like. Um, and then you have you know, this predominance of Republican governors all over the country now. Uh, how is this falling on state governments going to be a, a, a direction for solutions? I don't see that. They're gonna. They are already being forced to confront it. Uh, look at what John Bell Edwards, to give one example, is doing. He's dealing with a legislature that is so hostile to the idea of taxes that they are quite happy to keep gutting education. And he's standing his ground. And I think in time he will probably have some success in getting them to come back to the table because sooner or later. Look, LSU is the flagship school. Everybody loves it when they do well in football or basketball. But if people stop sending their kids there because tops goes down the tubes or it's not strong enough, you know, this is Bobby Jindal's legacy, clearly. They're going to have to come up with revenue schemes to do it. And at some point, that means embracing taxes, which is the dirty word. A dirty word. Well... <laughs> You know, I just want – okay, so actually that brings me to a point that I, I, I don't have an answer to at all. But mm -hmm. to me, 
a lot of what has happened in the past couple decades is that there has been this incredible, not just to me, but this is a kind of a, a given, hardening of positions, right, on both sides, the uh, and there's more than two sides, but on the more liberal side and the more conservative side, and there's this hard, hard um, anti-tax, anti-government um, uh, position it, uh, it has been embraced by people who suffer from it, which is one of the big ironies. So, and, and you're seeing a lot of this discussion right now nationally about um, how we are poised to kill affordable health insurance when 20 million people have just signed up for it. And, and does, how, how does this make any sense? And you would think that by this time, maybe the Republican psychology had evolved a little. And maybe some folks out there who were big Trump supporters who were saying, uh oh, wait a minute. You mean to tell me you're going to take away my health insurance? Well, Gene, I would go back to what I said a few minutes ago about um, the legal challenges to the rollback of, of these regulations That's and reforms. That's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean. But what about those legal challenges? I'm sorry, do they just aim you at the Supreme Court? It's because and, the Supreme Court, and, and, and then you've got. And he puts somebody in. And no, it, it, it. Now, did you say Schumer yesterday, by the way, at uh, all? Uh, so, so Schumer is the new minority yeah, leader, right. right? And the Schumer is basically – it's going to be a very interesting war of the New Yorkers that's going to go on between Schumer and, and Trump. Right. But Schumer is saying, yeah, just go ahead and try, sort of like make my day. Try to do the things that you think you're going to do with affordable health. You don't have – any place to go with this. You cannot do what you think you're going to do. Well, you're saying what I was referencing in a, di he, he was even threatening. In a different sorry, way. That's right. That, that they're going to, uh, that the, the Democrats can actually do the same thing the Republicans just did and refuse to um, approve a new uh, Supreme Court justice. Uh, that was a new idea. Well, Let's, yeah, really. Wait, let, let, let's just focus on health care for a moment before we, to your show. We can jump to the Supreme Court if you want. But in order to truly repeal Obamacare in total, they're going to have to have a plan ready to take its place. And they've got nothing, and they know that. And the Times had a long piece the other day saying that even if they pass – The New York Times he's talking yes, about. Yes, the New York Times. Thank you. Even even if they pass some sort of bill that symbolically says Obamacare is over and they all uh, – the Republicans cheer in the aisles. Which they kind of have to do. Well, yeah, but if they do it and it's a symbolic piece of legislation and they say, okay, but we're not going to implement it for two years, well, what are they going to create in the meantime? You know, uh, I mean, it's kind of like the Brexit phenomenon. It's going to be great. In No, in Great Britain. <laughs> if you look at what, at what – I mean – you know, a thin majority of the Brits uh, voted to leave uh, the European Union. And the guy who's the chief diplomat in Strasbourg for the UK, who was going to be the point man for this new prime minister, uh, Theresa May, announced yesterday that he's quitting. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is a diplomatic jungle that they're in, and they don't know really how to do it. And what it's going to mean for them financially. And I think the Republicans in the House are in the same kind of situation. So let's take this back to the grassroots level. And, and, and uh, again, the, the position I was trying to, uh, to, to put out there is that when you 
um, are as clear, when the enemies are clear cut, and this is a much more clear cut situation than we've seen in a long time, then does that help foster the opposition and the resistance and, and, um, and, 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 and therefore ultimately change. Does it make Democrats stronger now because now we're forced Not to Democrats it? Is that so what you're much saying? Because I don't think the Democrats, as I say, I, I, I'm kind of neutral. I, I, on I agree with Democrats you. No, I'm, I'm not making that point. Either. So, so, so who is it going people, to be? And, people. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Does this foster a – I mean, again, let's go back to your situation with, with the church. I mean, that wasn't accomplished strictly by journalists. That was accomplished by people saying – Say what? The priests have been like doing Like I said, what? change within and change without, I well, mean, and pressure from without. Uh, I'm sorry. I have to go back to what I said earlier about the, the, the legal challenges that are, that are okay. really going to become a major story in the, in the coming year. Uh, look, the guy who's now head of EPA or going to be the head of EPA, assuming he gets, uh, you know, approved by con- Congress, if he really does try to stamp out programs that have been put in place because of climate change, there are going to be people within the EPA uh, putting up resistance. There will be legal challenges within within the agency. Within the and agency? leaking documents probably. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Le- oh, leaking I, I, documents you know, I think and that kind of thing. what we're going into is going to be a bonfire of investigative journalism. I think you're going to see – remember something. Barack Obama, who was demonized – by the right for all those years, ran one of the cleanest administrations. So true. In American history. In American history, yeah. I mean, his, his own integrity is, is impeccable. It's spotless. And he's a family man raising those two kids. I mean, they were beautiful people to watch, in my opinion. But I think what we're going to see is a series of brush fires that will just keep burning as these various agencies encounter resistance from people in the middle and lower levels. That's so fascinating. That's not exactly not what I was thinking was no, going to happen. I was really thinking positive. it was going to be more from 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 people outside who who Well, I think there'll be a lot of organization uh, organizing. I'm not saying I disagree. I'm just saying yeah, I'm sure I hadn't really thought about the pressure coming from within the both. Bar- I thought that people were just going to walk away. That people would just no, because they're bureaucrats, actually. Uh, ironically, he's right. There's bureaucrats within, and they don't lose their jobs per se just because Trump walks in, right? <coughs> oh, I, th- I think they're going to be whistleblowers abounding. And remember something. I said this That's earlier. This is a guy who ran for president against the news media. Now, if you look at the history of the modern presidency, none of these guys – who has won, has ever made an issue of the press. Nixon did toward the end of Watergate when he was going down, you know, blaming the press. But when people start blaming the press, they're scapegoating. Yeah. And it, it's because, you know, if you, if you have to blame reporters as the messengers, what you're running against is the information, and you're trying to blame the message. Yeah, and that's messenger. a scary, scary, scary thing. Well, it is scary, Morgan. I would certainly agree. But I think at the same time, there's going to be a lot of aggressive reporting uh, because that's what that's what people do in this profession. And it's going to be a rancorous uh, administration. You know, I'll tell you, actually, one of the agencies – 
um, that I can already see this coming from, you can anticipate it, you can feel it coming, is from the from the CIA and the FBI and yeah. all of our investigative... Wow. Uh, think about it. Because he has dissed them. Oh, well, yeah. well, wait, wait. Big time. Big yeah. time. Let's, a... let's just walk down that road for a moment. These guys are going to have more information on all of the people in this administration. And if you remember the famous scene in All the President's <laughs> Men in the movie, and of course it's there in the book, the guy Deep Throat, who toward the end of his life we learned, what was his name? Mark Felt, I believe. I mean, he was a career FBI guy. He knew where the bones were buried. And they saw what Nixon was doing. They didn't like it. They knew it was crooked. And so he starts giving Woodward this information. I suspect there are going to be other Deep Throats coming along in, in, in the years uh, and, and, of this And the question that I have here is, and, and that's great, we're going to have really great journalism, but with this era of fake news and this partisanship, do you have people like, oh, well, that's great journalism, and only quote-unquote uh, quote liberals are going to listen to what that great journalism is? Well, I, you make a good point, Morgan. I mean, the fake news thing is really depressing. When someone like Steve Bannon, the head of Breitbart, becomes becomes his chief counselor. I mean, this is a right-wing, uh, you know, white supremacist uh, website. Ideology is is going to be roiling through newsrooms, it, and unfortunately, newsrooms are shrinking. So, I, you know, one of the things that I would assume these foundations that are funding some of these websites and, and news sites uh, will do is try to figure out some kind of master strategy. Uh, I, I don't know how you do it with a a market in information that's going through so many convulsions yep. as we see today, but I think the I think the major print media, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, a couple of the networks perhaps, uh, will be forced to report this stuff and in the process, probably get more aggressive. So wait, so uh, you're saying that you think that the foundations are going to be the um, way that we're going to no. save journalism? Because well, that's a frightening thought. Because I, I live in the in the arts world where the foundations are not. Um, compensating for the lack of well, public and private support for the arts, and the, to, Look, to think that we're going to be dependent for, on foundations for our journalism is a fra is no. Really I, I, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that foundations are playing an ever greater role in providing seed support and long-term development grants for news sites. Uh, ProPublica is a good example. It's a nonprofit news site, The Lens here in New Orleans, which does a good job. And but they're, they're barely hanging on, right? I, Gene, I agree. I'm, I'm not saying this is nirvana, this is the happy ending, um, nor is the end of the yellow brick road in sight, but there is, at least at this point, a fairly substantial commitment on the part of a number of major foundations to try and develop, help fund some of these websites as print newsrooms shrink. Okay. I, I've got to uh, leave time here to talk with uh, Morgan about... You know about what? This is important enough. Uh, I'm happy to... I, I know, but uh, hold on. We're, we're going to... we're gonna. So 
just before we do that, because I do want to, we have to get that in to some extent uh, tonight because we have an event next week, and um, we can talk about it next week a little bit too. But um, th- here's the thing uh, that I've been keep wondering about. So, you know, I I I grew up in the Bronx, right? And so I was a benef- in the 40s and 50s, and I was therefore the beneficiary of an era of public education that gave me tools to negotiate the world and to and to understand and learn in a way that um, other people have been, in, in some places, not had that advantage. And so I always kind of, I don't forgive conservatives, but I kind of say they didn't have, they didn't get the exposure that I did. Now, there are some conservatives who come out of places like Harvard and Yale and whatever, and, and I, I don't know how to explain some of those characters, but a lot of people don't don't have that. So I keep thinking, what is it that we need to do to help folks better understand how they are being basically screwed and by whom? Because right now, I think a lot of people who who buy into Trump's rhetoric literally do not truly understand how they're being screwed and by whom. And I, I keep feeling like that. that's what's really missing is how do you reach folks and bring the, 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 the content? What, what are the messages? How do you reach folks who, I don't know how to say this in any other way, but are just so misguided as to um, who's got their back? You know, it's like well, knowing who your friends and who your enemies are. These folks just don't really understand when they can go for a guy like Trump who 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 he and his daughter and his son and I mean, everybody around him buy have all their products made in China I mean, doesn't and then they're going to believe him when he says but he's this is how he did it back. this is how he did it he, he he went right for the truth and the truth is the endemic racism in this country that's what he did and what you're talking about is how do you basically um, how do you get the people that voted for Trump who are uh, of the class of people that would be most impacted by his policies to realize that his policies are going to hurt them. Well, you know, there's, there's two things in what you just said, and and to, I have a tendency to believe that racism and bigotry, and I was saying that this afternoon, this morning rather, on Chuck's show for a minute, um, when he had somebody on who was arguing that the Jews are to blame for just about everything, you know, is one of those oh things. God. Oh yeah. So, um, and I said that you know, bigotry and racism is is in part a product of fear and insecurity and 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 deprivation in, in different ways. And so, I mean, again, I think that knowing who your enemies and your friends are is really critical. And, and I don't, I think a lot of folks the don't. The problem truly is that not enough that. people voted. You know, well, that is true, too. I mean, Justin. yeah, Trump did win the Electoral College. Hillary won the popular vote. But I think it was something like 45, 48 percent of people voted. So the majority of people did not vote. But but the, the 30, I think it's something like 36 percent of the population altogether were bought Trump. And they think that he is their friend. And I'm just, I'm going back to, we have failed. We, folks have failed. I don't know who the we is, but... There's a there's been a failure of helping to make sure that it, it's clear 
who is causing what to happen in the economy, in the political situation, in, sociologically, in our education. And, and I'm just saying, if you can have a dialogue and a debate with folks, can you, when do you penetrate the disinformation? To me, unless we learn, figure out how to do that, then the trend that we're on right now that led us to where we are today with this election, I, it's, it, are you saying the courts and, and the bureaucrats and the journalists are going to solve it? I don't I'm think not so. saying they're going to solve it. No, but I mean, you're, you're saying that they're, they're who's going to push back. And I say, um, I, I, don't, I think that we continue to have a very um, dangerous and divisive perspective on how things work on the part of too many people. And so you could have this kind of voting that we had in this election again and again. You know, I think it's a part of messaging, Gene. A, a lot That's of it what is I'm just, saying, that you know, the messaging what, is what's failed. W- what we do is we sit there and, and we talk about things on a level because we read the New York Times and all of this, and, and that just doesn't penetrate to people who are really hurting and really need hope. What What is the message to them that needs to get out there so that they feel enough hope to vote? And you see, again, you said it. Trump sent that message. He sent and, the message so to their Bernie. 36%. And so did Bernie. You're uh, right. They, the two of them did, and that's one of the reasons why, again, Hillary lost out is because she, she couldn't appreciate that depth, I think, of that of that pain. But um, they made a big mistake in going for a guy who doesn't really mean it. And, and so how do you penetrate, I guess, the facade is what I'm, I'm trying to say. Right. But speaking of facades – let me let me take a, a real big pivot here from a conversation that maybe um, we, we tried to cover a little too much ground in, in our in our short time, but it, it's not that short a time. We're, we'll, we're going to come back and keep this debate going. And Jason, I'd love to have you uh, um, come back and visit with us again in, in uh, periodically as we go forward. But you know, here we are in in in, car, in the on the on the cusp of carnival. Right, yeah. and and carnival is this. I, I've been reading some um, material on the beginnings of it, yeah. and um, I, it, it's fascinating how much there was this kind of ironic spoofing of society that was at the heart of the stories being told by the early. Cruise. And so I just read like literally a few paragraphs in, in Schindler's, one of Schindler's books. Henri Schindler is this guy who writes about Carnival very respectfully and lovingly. I mean, he's not somebody who condemns it. Well, he actually it did a lot of the way. artwork for Comus, I for believe. For Comus, right. So he's, he's, he's a supporter of this very um, you know traditional version of, of Carnival, and, and we're kind of taking a little bit of a different uh, direction on this. But he... Um, he said that in the early cruise, they actually put on these huge tableaus. And now for the first time I understood what's gone wrong with the balls that have gone into strictly these royal pageants as opposed to these kind of fake royal pageants well, as yeah. opposed to these fantasy um, tableaus that were put on at a time when the opera was so powerful here and you had all these theatrical people and they had all these incredible costumes and, and they ma- they really spoofed human um, uh, frailties. 
they they did that and uh, they they wanted to refer back to classical themes. That's the second part. But the other th thing that's extremely important is that they wanted to show that they were the kings and the queens of the city, that they were royalty in their own. Only New Orleans, right, would say that we have European royal blood in us and that we are the kings and queens of Carnival. They were the city's elite when it came down to it. So, so, um, and Morgan, the pageants did that just like a court, a king and a queen's court would in history. The royal part, but, yeah. but the, but the, um, the theatrical parts that preceded that is what I was surprised to read yeah, about but, but and understand that was a whole different da Vinci, thing. Da Vinci did the same thing for royal courts in Europe. I mean, royal courts always had artisans and others to create these kinds of pageants and tableaus. They were just part of the entertainments that oh, would go on there. So this is an extension yeah. of that mm -hmm. to a certain extent. But you're right, the classical themes. Alexander the Great would have been a classical theme that I'm sure some of the early carnival crews would have would have brought on to try to relate that power to. Well, thank you for bringing that up because that's where we got to go for a minute because I, I <laughs> we have this event coming up next week that is a a um, installation an art installation that you have done that is based on this uh, an imaginary notion of Alexander the Great this this conqueror this emperor who brought who who took over many many countries in the Mediterranean and um you 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 explored the notion of him coming to New Orleans today in carnival and you know what that's this is not an easy concept to convey to people so i wanted to really ask you where this whole notion that you have come from and you i, I want you to really explain so we ha we have this party that's going to happen it's going to happen on the 12th on thursday at the new orleans um arts center at 3330 st claude avenue right in the middle of the new you know, Exploding Arts District. Between piety and desire. Between piety and desire, of course. And um, lots of um, uh, people from the various new, these new downtown marching clubs and, and uh, crews that are having a blast with their own creative interpretations of carnival. So you have a whole new carnival scene that's evolving downtown. And here we have Alexander the Great coming to visit both the traditional um, carnival scene, and then this new carnival scene that we're going to explore. Um, what on, we call the Downriver down Carnival scene. And yeah. the, the idea came to me because uh, Alexander the Great conquered uh, you know, Greece and then went to Persia, and we know he also went to Egypt and all the way into India. And then he was uh, faced with the decision of just being a conqueror or being a governor, and he chose to govern all of this together uh, universally. And he was a multiculturalist. Now, his tutor, Aristotle, believed that Greeks were superior and that everyone else should be slaves, and they were mar barbarians. And so when I conceived of the idea of Alexander the Great coming to contemporary New Orleans and facing our questions uh, that we have today, well, he would be a multiculturalist, certainly. And, you know, we have certain issues here in the city. And what would he think about having... Um, all white balls. And and here he is, a great king arriving during Mardi Gras 
well, he would be the king that everyone would look at, right? To, and, and so I have him integrating all white balls in, in, in the uh, denouement scene of this uh, epic painting that I've done in this. So, so you're doing a series of murals, actually, yes. that you have, you're displaying within what you fashioned as his campaign, campaign tent. tent. He spent most of his life on the road, basically, in a tent. And the tents, of course, would have been quite lavish when he entered the tent of Darius III, who was the Persian king. He said, oh, so this is what it's like to be a king. It was so lavish, so full of gold and, that, and such. But very few, very few characters. And he married Persian wives. So, um, and he was the pharaoh of Egypt, which is North Africa. So very few people were as famous or had as much of an impact uh, as he did. And I felt that it was really important to look at this character historically. I think it begins that whole conversation historically about whether we should be universalists and, and or sectionalists to a certain extent. Because the Greeks really felt very strongly like Aristotle. Oh, well, the Greeks are superior and we want to have borders and we want to uh, stay stick together. Alexander said, we're all one people. Oh, that's so interesting. That's not a view that, I mean, not that I understood at all um, what his thinking was. I, I, I just, you know, wrote it out to being a, a conqueror like any other conqueror, wanting to just control more and more land you know, uh, and people uh, and well, riches when you're and tut- everything else. When your tutor's Aristotle, you have a little more going for you. Um, <laughs> and he was a philosopher king. And, and, and it, it, you know, I'm not saying, you, you know, look, the, the, the guy had faults. But when I really look at um, what he was faced with, I mean, Persia, that's where the world is blowing up right now. I mean, in modern-day Iraq, Iran, he went into India. He wanted to go into China, and, you know, he heard there was a Silk Road. So this one wanted to understand the world. Yeah, he wanted to control it in the sense, but he had the first, he was conceptually the first idea of a borderless empire with communications throughout it where it wasn't about, you know, this country versus that country. Well, it's great if it's just sounds one like, world, right? Sounds like what Europe has tried to do over the last, you know, generation, and now they're so taxed by the borders. Exactly, Jason. It's yeah. the seed of liberalism, if yeah. you really yeah. think about it. It's the seed of liberalism uh, uh, thinking. And his thinking versus Aristotle's thinking, which classifies everything, this versus that versus this person is that way, that person is this Question. Tell me about your mural. How many are there, and, and what do you depict? Um, thanks, Jason. Uh, uh, their, um, their ideas of him coming to New Orleans in seven different places. So I have him on Congo Square because he, he, he would know what a Dionysian festival was. He would be out on his, – his mother was a Dionysian priest. Audubon Park. And he's blessing the animals there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't met Mardi Gras, and he's uh, at the meeting of the courts. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, coming in on horseback uh, and bringing in with him some Mardi Gras Indians and uh, some uh, – Busting into the – Yeah, busting into uh, <laughs> the, the court uh, scene there, which is a fascinating uh, scene uh, to paint. It's, it's, it's enormous painting there. And um, at the NOAC, at, you know, very Greek in there <laughs> – the uh, New Orleans Athletic Club. Yeah, so and there's so much Greek revival architecture here. Uh, it's very, it's an interesting place for him to arrive. But I think because also we're so multicultural, New Orleans would be a place that he would truly like. The music would be appealing to him. The uh, differences in our food uh, would be interesting. 
So, and I also think, frankly, Jason, and I want to thank you for your leadership and what you've done in the past, and Gene also. Leadership is one of the things I've been most focused on with all of the works that I've done, whether it's, um, you know, kind of jokingly through through Jean Lafitte. Finally, I've arrived with a character who, who truly has the essence of leadership and kind of characterized it for everybody. Yeah. And... Um, so in, this is in Alexander. In Alexander yeah. the Great. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's a rather obscure figure. From so most people, you know, uh, don't know a lot about him. So I was going to say, I know, I, I knew very little about him, and and I, I again, I, I always had this very simple-minded view of him as a conqueror, just somebody who was well, he was good I, at I, that I view too. Conquer, conquerors in general, and that's how I view mm. Trump in a way as a as a conqueror. Well, it was as a different world. Who wants to control territory, people, resources, everything? They just want to literally control everything around them, and that's a, an instinct, that's a scary instinct. I'm sorry, where, where are the uh, murals going to be exhibited? New Orleans uh, uh, Arts Center, and uh, th- that opening is next Thursday, and it's a benefit for the Creative Alliance of New Orleans. And if you, now, only, only Gene's callers, if you put in, you go to Eventbrite, and if you put in Yelp 504, then you Yelp, get Y E L P five oh four. You're gonna get a ten dollar discount on that rate. So that's gonna get you uh twenty five dollars. And you're gonna get food and, and, and booze and Music. entertainment. I mean we've got uh what, what do we have? Honey, Chief Honey uh is coming. And the Wild Bambulas will be there to uh, toast and Alexander. And DJ and some other um, sort of surprise uh, things coming along. So it's a week from at, Thursday. Yeah, yeah and we, it's next okay. week. And it's a, it starts at 7 o'clock, um, but the, the meeting of the courts when the various um, Downriver uh, courts. folks who are from these various new young uh, uh, crews, and, and by the way, including uh, uh, maybe, and we don't know exactly yet who's going to be there, but we know Teet Rex is going to be there for one, and um, Chewbacca as, uh, as an example. We're trying to get Bunny Matthews, so if you're out there, Bunny, please come, because he's king of crew to view. Crew to view, Saint Anne, Saint Cecilia, all these these. Uh, Margarita yeah. Bergen is coming. Not to mention, of course, there's a, a ton of um, uh, you know the 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 um, Montegray Indians from. Uh, downtown that we're reaching out to and, and seeing who we can get to come to be honored is the, this meeting. Yeah, of oh, course, if anyone knows baby a, dolls, we'd love to have the baby dolls. dolls. Um, we're we're looking towards this being a much more democratic democratic meeting of the courts than that Comus and Rex kind of meeting. So, it, right. again, uh, it builds off your uh, theme Multicultural about, theme. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. why should we have all white balls in New Orleans still? I mean, it seems ridiculous to me. I, I, I'm sorry, this is... All anything. Right. So, yeah. we're going to do a real meeting of the courts. So, that is on Thursday. And, um, you know, uh, I just wanted to ask... Jason, ask you one more question. What what are you working on right now? I heard you just hint at it um, outside the booth. Yeah, I'm working on a film about jazz funerals using burial traditions as a lens on the evolution of New Orleans and the diverse society. So part of it is about Congo Square. Part of it is about uh, how brass bands changed from the 19th to the 20th century. And, of course, there's a lot about funerals that we've shot. And so, obviously, this is a whole other show, and I will have you come back and talk. But just give me a hint as to what you're, you're 
uh, unearthing in your research? What what has so far unearthing caught great. your attention? And oh, well, I didn't mean to do that. It's great. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, well, I think that many of the mainstream jazz men today are deeply concerned about how rough and fiery the second lines have become uh, because of the drug wars going back for the last 20 years. So the, the, the beauty of the funeral traditions that once so the, existed... The spiritual are, underpinning. Yeah, yeah, are now kind of uh, in a, in a freefall. Jason, are you going all the way back to early New Orleans history, like very early yeah. burials in the city? Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be fascinating because yeah. our culture really plays out in our indeed, and this in is our cemeteries and for uh, the tricentennial for 2018. So this has been an, an, an kind of an oddball show. We've jumped around uh, from idea to idea, but I've enjoyed it, and um, so uh, I look forward to having you both back. Okay. And <clears throat> I want to hear more about um, your research as you're sure. doing it on the jazz funeral. Admire you both. I'm always happy to be with you. And I'm happy uh, to invite everybody in the listening audience to come to the um, moment when Alexander the Great visits New Orleans, a fantasy event, art installation, carnival party, 3330 St. Claude Avenue, right there in the middle of um, downtown New Orleans. Thank you all. This is our inaugural 6 o'clock show. I'll be back here next Wednesday and Wednesdays to come at 6 o'clock. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations on WBOK. Thank you.